as the crisis of climate change heats up, there's certainly a place for hard-hitting documentaries that give us the painful truth to spur us into action. But as we approach the midpoint of 2019, it doesn't look like it's working. We're growing immune and maybe even a little bored of the scare tactics. What we need is optimism. We need some practical steps that we can all take today to create a future we can be proud of. And that's where my guest today comes in. Damon Gamow is the director and star of 2040, a film that follows him on a trip across the world and through time to explore the technology and the innovative businesses that are up and running today and that have the potential to make the year 2040 a much greener place. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about sustainable business, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. The film's framed around Damon's four-year-old daughter and the jumps between the present and an imagined future, the year 2040, when his daughter will be 21. And instead of the dystopian wasteland that many sci-fi films predict for the future, he sees a world where traditional farming techniques are used to suck carbon out of the atmosphere, where fields of seaweed are grown in the ocean to feed us all, and where small-scale solar power systems can help less developed communities leapfrog the need for complex centralised power grids and instead harvest power from the sun and sell the excess to their neighbours. The vital point here is that this isn't fantasy. This is technology that's already available right now. And if we embrace it, then not only can we help shift towards a renewable and circular economy, the businesses that lead the way, the pioneers, well, they're looking like pretty damn savvy long-term investments. It was great to have Damon in the studio at Hub Australia in Sydney. You'll be hard-pressed to find a bigger advocate for a shift towards sustainability than Damon. He's working tirelessly to spread the message and it's all well aligned with what we're trying to do here at Good Future. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. If you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, I'd love to hear what you think of this one. And you'll find all the show notes on the website at johntreadgold.com. All right, nothing left to do but dive in to my conversation with Damon Gamo. Here we go. Damon, great to have you up here in Sydney at Hub Australia. Really appreciate you giving us some time today. I'm sure it's a busy week with your film coming out next week. Yeah, we've been doing a, uh, a Q&A tour of the country at the moment, so I've done uh, about 20 Q&As and uh, we've got 15 to go, so I'm nearly there. I do feel like a politician at the moment. I haven't kissed a baby yet or drunk a beer on camera, but uh, I'm not far off it. That's it. Well, you're going to have to keep going after next week when I guess half of them are going to get to stop. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> we've got to talk about your documentary. It's called 2040. You star in it, you direct it, but the striking thing, I mean, it's about climate change, it's about sustainability, but it's really optimistic which isn't the feeling you have when you come out of a lot of these. I was really energised, yeah. felt really, you know, no positive. So was that sort of the intention right from the outset? Yeah, I guess it's a, a bit of a response or an antidote to the constant sort of nihilistic narrative we're getting at the moment about the future and environment. And uh, there's just so much neuroscience out there now that supports that people do disengage when information is constantly given to us with dread or fear or anxiety. It's... Um, 
there are parts of the brain that kind of shut down and those parts are where we problem solve and think creatively so it's important to know what's going on there's no doubt about it we probably need to feel the depths of, of what is going on in a, in, in a much better way than we are I think our kids are really feeling it but a lot of us don't really understand how dire the situation is but at the same time it's not a great motivator I think um, we need to show solutions and show what can be done and highlight the people that are doing spectacular things around the world that are trying to solve this problem and if we give more of them our attention then it gives uh, more of an impetus for people to get involved and support them. That's it. And, and this film, it's got a really interesting structure. It's, it's in the present, but it's also in the future. And, uh, you know, in the blurbs, they talk about uh, it being fact-based dreaming. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about that term? I think it's an interesting one, but I could sum it up. Yeah, so it's a, a letter to my daughter who's um, five years old, and it just shows her what the world could look like in 2040 if we put into practice the best solutions that exist today. So it is, it's an exercise in what I call fact-based dreaming. Everything I show her in the future has to exist today in some form. I can't make it up. So... You know, that would probably be an exercise in bad parenting if I just sort of said, look, everything's going to be fine and look how magical the future is. It's sort of, I was very careful to not do that, to say, no, this is realistic. These things are possible. We just need to actually extrapolate them and really invest in them or get people to support them to turn them into a much more mainstream concept by 2040. So it is a dream or a vision board as well, I think. Most Hollywood films you see that depict the future are inherently dystopian. You know, there's, there's just robots everywhere. We're living in slums. There's certainly no nature in the cities. And I just think uh, we've got to be careful there because that's a future we'll march on into if we think that's how it's going to be. I think we need to remind people that it can look very different and we can reintegrate nature and we can have more communities in our cities and make them more livable. That is also an option and uh, that's where images can be really powerful. That's right. Well, sci-fi movies are really proud of, you know, the technology that they saw early on and that's become the reality. So I guess we've got to be really careful with, you know, that dystopian that we don't as you say, tumbled into that. Mm. And this, you know, discussion of a vision, uh, we often talk about the businesses, you know, that are, that are seeing sustainability as a competitive advantage. And I think those types of really future-focused business people have that vision. And there's some really great examples that you talk about in the film. Can you run us through a few of those? Yeah, I think it's interesting that um, what's emerging at the moment are sort of new sets of cultural norms and values and what we want businesses to do and provide. And I think we're reaching a point where, you know, companies are going to be called out if they are just purely extracting and sort of wasting resources, that people are getting increasingly more savvy about what these companies are doing. So it presents an opportunity for certain organisations to really do the right thing and be rewarded for that because there is a thirst for that. So look, I was quite blown away by how much innovation is out there and how many people are rolling up their sleeves and trying to solve this problem. We don't give them anywhere near enough attention that we should. We, we're still focused on, you know, whether it's royal babies or mad ranting tweets from presidents. We need to actually get off that and, and, and start looking at the solutions and start inspiring people to, to motivate them to take action. And the business sector is no different. Um, and I think, uh, as you know, often that business sector is ahead of the game. And uh, we've seen that with some of the technologies like the microgrids in Bangladesh that we highlight in the film. They're spreading right through India and Bangladesh and Africa. They're illegal in Australia right now because of regulations. The same in the US. It's still that very hierarchical structure of a top-down, large energy utility provider but the technology is here people are going to want it very quickly so we sort of need governments to get on board in that sense and say look there's a there's a revolution here you're going to upset a few large businesses but the future is decentralized and we're seeing it on the internet we're seeing it with energy we're seeing it with blockchain and finance you know get with the program because i think by 2040 you know things are going to look fundamentally different to what they look now yeah get with the program that's great and i mean it's very apt in that political situation, got an election on, and I think this election really is shaping up to be one about change. I mean, look, 
think every election is, is you know, pushed on change, but this is very real, that we can either go in one direction, we take advantage of these huge opportunities, and we have the space, we have the sun, we have the smarts, we have it all, or we can live in the past and just keep digging. Yeah, that's right. I, I do feel we stand at a really interesting crossroads and, and elections here, but also in the US are just going to be pivotal. The decisions we make in the next five or ten years are going to determine the next thousand. So, like going to the doctor, you go and get the diagnosis, and he says, well, if you continue doing what you're doing, you're going to inflict enormous harm, and you may even destroy yourself. But here's an opportunity to sort of do more exercise, eat healthier food, get off the ciggies or the coal stacks and actually reinvent yourself and how you're going to live your life. So I've really tried to present 2040 as, as, well, I guess reframing this crisis as an opportunity and a chance to actually fundamentally change the way we interact with each other, the planet, our soils, our oceans, how we do business, how we communicate with each other. We're being presented with that opportunity. Whether we take it or not is the biggest challenge, but I think it's important for people to know it is possible and that's why I made the film, to, to give that hope that we can do this it's now up to us how, how willing we are to galvanise and get it done. Yeah, you make it really tangible. And there's quite a broad sort of, I guess, section of people you talk to. At the start, you talk to your young daughter, you know, that what world will she end up in in 2040? But at the same time, older economists, environmentalists, farmers, who's the real sort of target audience for this film? What was important was I didn't want it to just be my vision of 2040. I thought that was really important. So I did ask about 110 kids from around the world between the ages of 11. Uh, they're the ones that will be inheriting 2040 and in their prime then. I just wanted, I just simply said to them, by the time you're the same age as your mum and dad, what, what kind of things would you like to see in the world? And as you see in the film, their answers are quite staggering really. And they're just so articulate about what needs to be done and what they want to see in the future. And Again, that's where the hope lies, that again, these values that these kids are, are growing up with are quite extraordinary and they're going to implement great change when they get that opportunity. So, but apart from them, I, I probably spoke to about a hundred and more than a hundred different academics and scientists and different people around the world. I researched the film for eight months before we filmed anything, just to get a sense of what was out there, what was actually possible. I didn't even know if these solutions existed, but was completely gobsmacked by how much is going on. And, and again, this is what Rebecca Solnit talks about in her book, Hope in the Dark. This is what happens away from the main spotlights in the shadows off to the side of the stage and this is where this flurry of activity is going on and the innovation and the ingenuity which really is propelling us to a much better future and I think the more we can get people to engage in that and be excited by that we really will see great change in our generation and, and I think that's something we should all be excited about we're living through a moment in history and we know with energy we're seeing a revolution. We're in the middle of it right now. We don't even realise it, but we'll look back to these times as being a revolution. And I think it's going to happen with these kids striking the Extinction Rebellion. We've got governments declaring climate emergencies around the world. We are in a historic moment. And um, I think there's, a, there's an element to be excited about. Yeah, very good. And your previous film, That Sugar Movie, That Sugar Film? That Sugar Film, yeah. That Sugar Film, there we go. Was the idea for 2040, did it sort of come after that? Was it something that had been gestating? You know, what's the sort of genesis of this film and when did you really start to think that, you know, you were perhaps the voice that could do this? I think I've always had an interest in environmental issues but just didn't know how to connect with it. It was just sort of something I sort of a bit latent in me. And then the sugar thing sort of was a bit of an accident. It took me by surprise, really. I'm not really a foodie. I, I don't have a burning desire for that space and um, was quite shocked at how the film took off and suddenly found myself you know addressing doctors in London at the Royal College of Medicine and, and starting to talk about fructose metabolism and the way that things operate in the, in the blood and I just sort of had moments I was on Dr. Rolls in America thinking what am I doing here like how did this happen you know so I guess what I learnt there is how important it is to make information accessible to people. I think sometimes documentaries can be a bit too earnest and reverent and serious and can play to a very niche audience. I love docos, so I'm not saying anything against them, but that sometimes they don't reach a broader audience. 
And I just thought about climate in particular. And again, like we've just had, we've left scientists to not only disseminate the problem, but also communicate it to us. And that's not necessarily their greatest strength. It's no fault of theirs. They just use language that is hard to relate to sometimes. Words like anthropogenic or negative emissions. They don't really stir the, the loins and, and inspire motivation and action. So I really thought, well, here's an opportunity to, again, to make this stuff a little bit more tangible to the public, to families as well, to kids. And because I think a lot of people want to understand more about this, but it's, it's very difficult to digest. It's such a big, complicated problem with so many different facets. So that was a big part of the research was to try and find ways to really simplify this information without oversimplifying it and make sure that people deeply understand what's going on, but then feel that they can take action on it. And you spoke to a couple of great academics who've written about it. Um, Kate Raworth, who wrote Donut Economics, and Paul Hawken as well with um, Drawdown. Mm -hmm. How did you find those guys? Yeah, so Paul was great. He's been a real mentor, actually. He's quite a remarkable human. And I'd been researching for about six months, and then I was in Colorado at a festival, and he was talking on stage. And he gave this presentation about Project Drawdown, which was um, seven years of work with about 200 academics to map, measure and model the 100 most substantive solutions to reversing global warming. So not mitigating it, but actually reversing it. And they've used all the data, they've done the costings and all sorts of this. It's an incredible piece of science. And he was just talking and I just couldn't believe this person was articulating everything that I'd been um, researching. And we met afterwards and just had a lovely connection and, and just worked together really quite closely on scripts and making sure that it was really watertight and diligent and accurate. And Kate was the same, just she's written this book called Donut Economics, which is which is quite revolutionary in a lot of ways and just really talks about how damaging our, our narrow focus of just GDP and how uh, detrimental that's been to us is that we are only valuing things on a monetary level and that's not who we are as humans. We're, we're much more complicated than that. And how do we start to bring those other metrics into how we measure and make the invisible visible again? And she also talks about this notion of just we've got this linear understanding of the economy, just a, a constant GDP growth that keeps going and keeps going. But as we know, that sort of doubles the economy every 20 years or so. And given where we are with certain resources, I think we use about 90 billion metric tonnes of resources right now globally, whether it's minerals and metals and fish and livestock. But the sustainable level is only 50 billion uh, metric tonnes. So we're already almost double what the earth can replenish every year. And with our current growth rates, we're on track for 180 billion metric tonnes by 2050. So that destroys every living thing on the planet. So they're the tricky conversations we have to have, is is what does growth look like moving forward? And she proposes a really interesting idea around that that says that nothing in nature grows forever. It really grows quickly early on, but then it matures and thrives. And how do we start to embed that into our economy so that we don't destroy ourselves? Mm, I mean, we talk about you know, the problems with GDP as a metric. We talk about that quite a lot on this podcast and trying to evolve these types of mm. things and impact measurement as well. And so I wonder for yeah. you, you know, how, how will you measure whether this film has been successful? Do you have any <laughs> sort of KPIs or anything? Or yeah, we've how you a, see yeah, we've got a few. So one of the really exciting things about the film is that the film is just a small part of a larger network we've developed and we've worked with about 50 different organisations around the world, various philanthropic groups, to really help people develop their own personalised action plan after the film so they go to our website what's your 2040.com and you can activate your plan and we'll give you six or seven things that you can do right now on your own or in your business or family based on your interests and what you connected with in the film and through various groups we've got really terrific ways of, of measuring our success and one of them is a is a terrific search engine you might know about called Ecosia, E-C-O-S-I-A, it's a German company 
And instead of uh, like Google auctioning off your data and making money that way, they used that money to actually plant trees around the world. And they've planted almost 60 million trees. So just by searching, you can actually plant trees and sequester carbon. So on my browser now, there's a little tree in the top corner. It just tells you how many trees you've planted simply by searching. So if enough people did that, we'd have a profound impact on the planet and it doesn't really disrupt anything in, in a large way. So we've got a link through them so we can already tell how many people have used, how many trees have been planted through people coming to Ecosia through our networks. We've got schools involved. We've got a free lesson plan from grade five to 10 with 31 lesson plans that teachers can download. So already we're seeing really great metrics there around what people are doing. And we're also working with an initiative called Carbon 8, which is just astonishing, which is a couple of farmers that have set up a model where you can donate $8 a month and that money pays farmers to put the carbon back into the soil. And uh, just $8 a month allows you to sequester about 1,200 tonnes of carbon a year, which offsets the emissions of 80 people who are doing nothing. So again, that's a really great way for us to measure how much carbon we're actually pulling out of the atmosphere just from people watching the film. That's it. We hear so, so many sort of discussions of things that we can do of, of transport, electricity mm. and all these things, but we don't think about the search engine. You know, something yes. that we use tangibly every day, we assume that the big tech companies are actually these, you know, glossy white kind of holier-than-thou companies. That's but right. at the back of it, they're still running on electricity, which is Absolutely. powered by coal. And Yeah. And it's interesting you're talking about the metrics before. I had a beautiful experience recently. I, I was invited to Bhutan, and I went to spend time at their Gross National Happiness Centre. And what they've done there is actually said, well, we need to broaden that metric and the measurement of just GDP and finance. So they've set up then these nine pillars that every policy has to go through before it gets approved. And it's not only the financial benefit, but it's also the community vitality, psychological well-being, time use, environment, gender equality, health. So nothing gets through unless it ticks all those boxes. And while we were there, we met some of the ministers and they were discussing a mining policy at the time. And they were talking about intergenerational equity. So they decided to knock back this mining policy because it was starting to dig into the resources of future generations. So just an astonishing, well-rounded way of valuing what we do value in society and what's important to us. And uh, there are other countries starting to look at that. And I think even Canberra have just announced a couple of days ago they're going to do a wellbeing index as well. So that's the first step to whatever new system we're thinking about creating. I think that's just a lovely, soft, logical first thing to do. And I think this idea of it being a new step, but it's a first step. And while there's a long way to go, we have a couple of hundred years of experience with, with measuring financial output, but not much in social and environmental output. Yeah. And certainly coming, mm. you know, we've got the skills. We just need to drive towards it. So I think when people start to engage and start to realise it's inevitable, then that's when the real change will happen. That's right. And again, that's, that's this younger generation, you know, and I think um, there's a great, Jonathan Salk does these great series of graphs about we're at an intersection point. It's a clashing of two worldviews is happening at the moment. And one is this sort of post-war, post-depression, that endless growth is the thing that, that's, that's going to survive us. And that's the way to sort of lift people out of poverty. But we've got this younger generation saying, yeah, that's all well and good. But how do we do that on a planet with finite resources? We actually can't keep going that way. We have to look at more sharing economies and more, more ways of distributing our resources or our energy in better ways. So we're just these two sort of worldviews are starting to have a headbutt at the moment. And I think that's why we're seeing so much um, angst around this topic and especially around the economy at the moment. And, you know, it's exciting because we're trying to develop new solutions, but um, it might get a little bit ugly for a while. Well, that's it. And some of those, you know, in economics, you have assumptions that go into models. And ideas of infinite growth are really in there and they're sort of a core pillar. So 
we're going to have to dig down quite deep and really shift that. So. Yeah, I mean, imagine any prime minister or leader that came out and said, actually, we've got a slow growth down. I mean, that's just the, the recession is the dirty word. And, and as Kate Rayworth says, you'll lose your place in the, in the G20 family photo, you know, and no country wants to do that, you know. So it is perhaps our greatest challenge if we're going to deal with these climate issues and what's happening with our soils. I mean, the UN says we've got 60 years of topsoil left. You know, what we're doing to our forests, we just can't keep growing at this kind of this percentages that we are. And uh, I guess that's the, that's the big conversation we have to try and have. For this podcast, it's been really the main focus has been trying to find the business leaders and the economists who you wouldn't think would be engaging with those sorts of things. But there's actually a really oh, yeah. big and growing community that there are is. thinking about this stuff and taking advantage of it. You know, I've been engaging with these people and it's been the, the greatest part of this podcast, meeting people like yourself and talking about these ideas. I mean, you talked about meeting Paul Hawken at a conference and, and that sort of serendipity of hearing it and saying, you know, I hadn't quite been able to make that tangible and there it was. Mm. A really smart guy has written all about it. He's got a plan. And so this community building is vital, I think. And that's what you've done in a really tangible way, spreading the film. So really excited to try and push that, get people to, yeah. to get out and see the film next week, jump online and, uh, and map out their own 2040. That's right. Yeah. And look, what's great is that we've got such terrific support from all the cinemas. So the film's going to open on about 100 screens around the country, which is quite phenomenal for a documentary. And we've just found out that Palace Cinemas actually, um, they're going to give free entry on our opening weekend to any student that comes along to the film with an adult. So they're really trying to say, yep, we need the younger generation to get on board with this message and they can come and watch the film for free if they come with a parent. So it's a wonderful gesture. So let's just hope that uh, it does catch fire and we, we get this new set of language, a new way of talking about the climate starts to really infiltrate society. Yeah, and that's where you want to start. Start with the kids. That's it. Yeah. Get them involved. Uh, there's a great quote from an abolitionist, Frederick Douglass, who I love, and he said, um, it's a lot easier to build strong children than it is to fix broken men. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a good quote. Wow, broken men. That's a pretty powerful image. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, look, just to finish off, I'd love to get a book recommendation. Mm. The Divide by Jason Higgles is a really interesting book, just looking at some of the mechanisms and the blocks to the system at the moment that might inhibit us from getting to 2040. Really great breakdown of certain rules like trade treaty rules and what things are in the way of reaching this better, more sustainable future, and that's a really good insight. And another one which I think is really exciting is called The Carbon Farming Solution, and it's just, again, looking at the way that we can actually pull all this carbon out of the atmosphere without building giant sucking machines on the edge of our cities or huge geoengineering projects by actually growing more wonderful foods that we all love, like macadamias and coffee and chocolate and things like that. So that's a revolution I want to be part of. Good stuff. And, of course, I'll give a plug to the 2040 book. Oh, yeah, could read that if you wanted to, too. Yeah, it's just a bit of a deep dive into all the things I had to leave out. Obviously, the film's only 90 minutes. The first cut was about three hours and 20 minutes. And so a lot of that stuff's gone into the book. And again, each chapter ends with what you can do right now and lists sort of 20 or 30 things that you can actually get involved with right now, whether it's divesting your super or understanding, you know, involving yourself more in your community or approaching the councils and really finding your agency to, to be the leaders because we're not getting the leadership at the level that we, we need to at the moment. So it really is um, a call to action for everyone else to get involved good stuff damon all right i'll leave it there you've got a lot of other people to speak to and spread the message but really appreciate you coming into hub australia in sydney today my pleasure thanks for having me